lab testing, what you need to know to make sure that the food and products you're using are safe. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by John Fagan from HRI Labs, who is an expert in this area and is going to enlighten you about all the subtleties you may not have been previously aware. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, John. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Real pleasure. So um, maybe you can give us a little history of your journey and how you came to be proficient in lab testing and a director of a lab and uh, what HRI Labs is all about. Ah, thanks. Well, uh, in, just in a one phrase, what HRI is about, Health Research Institute Labs, is making the invisible visible giving you the ability to see into what is in your food and into your environment, all of these things. And um, where I came from is that uh, I have a, I studied uh, biochemistry and molecular biology at Cornell University. I got my PhD from them. And from there I went to the National Institutes of Health for a, a decade and then into academia where I did cancer research using, actually using genetic engineering as a research tool. Hmm. And I got concerned about genetic engineering and especially what it was doing to our food. And as a result, I created the first lab for GMO testing in America and uh, also developed labs in Europe, in Japan, and trained laboratories in 17 other countries. And what this did was to make GMOs visible. Before those, that testing was there, nobody could tell whether those soybeans or that corn was genetically engineered or not. But after that testing was available, people had a choice. And we want to do the same thing for two things. One are the baddies and two are the goodies. The baddies are all the pesticides and herbicides and other environmental toxins that are that can be in our food and our environment the goodies are the the higher density of micronutrients that are going to make your food even better for you so we feel that the kind of testing that we're doing can open a window for you in each of those areas so you can make better choices about the food that you eat and that you share with your family. Oh, great. So when you established the initial screenings for GMO foods, or uh, what were you testing for? It wasn't the herbicide glyphosate, which is you know one of your best tests, I think, now. Was it the actual antigens that were modified in GMO production, like the BT for the BT corn and some of the other uh, shifts they made with them? Good question. Uh, actually, the antigens are one kind of test, but what we did was to actually look at the DNA. Ah. DNA. DNA is very stable, more stable than proteins. So you can find the genetically engineered DNA even in highly processed foods. So mm. that's what we went for, and it's um, more sensitive and more rigorous that way. And what type of screening or analysis do you do to check for the DNA? Is it a PCR test where you amplify it or is yeah. it uh, yeah, chromatography? Yeah, so we use, and it can, still this is in use, is 
the uh, polymerase chain reaction, which is a, uh, a method that can detect, even because it amplifies the signal by a cyclic amplification, uh, it can detect one or two molecules if they're present. So we could, for instance, detect a single genetically engineered corn kernel in a bag that contained 10,000 or more such corn kernels. Very sensitive. So you have a chromatograph too, and maybe you can discuss that because this seems to be one of the central pieces of equipment you have at your lab uh, that really yeah. allows you to test for a wide variety of things and maybe explain you know, the reason why a lot of labs don't have this because of the cost and the complexity and, and really getting certified through the analytical labs to do the testing legally. Yeah. Um, this is what we have come up, we, we, we've developed now, is um, it's called liquid chromatography linked to a mass spectrometer. Liquid chromatography is capable of taking a sample of food or of uh, something that you're going to, some orange juice or whatever you're, going, you're, you're, you're interested in, and fractionating it, fractionating it into literally hundreds of compounds making the uh, separating them out and then that is fed into a mass spectrometer which is a machine that measures ultimately molecular weight of the whatever it's looking at and with that you can detect at extremely low levels and identify very specifically almost any compound that's out there any any natural uh, or unnatural compound and at very low levels really down to the parts per trillion, uh, literally, um, uh, to give you a sense of what that means, uh, parts per, 40 parts per trillion, which is a limit of detection that we have for some materials, is like if you were to take a single drop of that chemical and put it into 20 Olympic swimming pools, dilute it into 20 Olympic swimming pools full of water, that's the level of dilution that you would get, that you would have to get at that level. So it's extremely sensitive. That's and, great. And with, mm -hmm, yeah. And uh, th there's a significant barrier to entry because most labs don't have this level of com equipment complexity, and because of the cost and the challenge in uh, training certified technicians to run that. So, so why don't you describe how how uh, common this type this pieces these pieces of equipment are and and how many labs have access to them? These are like the Teslas of analytical chemistry. Yeah, you know, it's like that, I like that analogy so much better than the Cadillacs, because that is the new Cadillac, <laughs> is the Tesla. Yeah. So um, in fact, the machine that we use, it would it, it's equivalent in cost to about four Teslas. Mm -hmm. That's the one we use for measuring glyphosate. So it's really expensive, and uh, and if for this reason, even many of the um, analytical labs out there don't have access to this. And also, because it is very specialized equipment, you you need a PhD in order. You need somebody with a PhD in analytical chemistry, or somebody with many many years of experience to do this kind of testing. And this is why, in fact, what we're doing is not, it isn't one of a kind, 
but it's unique uh, in in that way. And yeah, so yeah. Why don't we go a little bit on a tangent to some of the politics involved here? And one of the reasons why we were so interested in collaborating with your lab is that many of the conventional commercial laboratories out there that are used as supposedly independent labs to confirm the, the um, uh, purity of some of the raw materials uh, actually are not very truthful. And in fact, you know, in our experience, they, they provide uh, really prejudicial, distorted, incorrect information. So uh, if this is a topic you don't want to delve into, that's fine. But if you're willing to discuss that, I'd appreciate it. Because to me, that's one of the great features of, or benefits of a lab like yours. It really is objectively true. Yeah, there are actually two factors. One of them is the, um, you know, the politics of it. And the other is the economics of it. Most of these food labs are really working their primary customers, even though they're, in, quote, independent. Their primary customers are the big food companies. Mm -hmm. They don't want to embarrass them. They don't want to bring anything to the surface on that level. So they um, tend to give um, very superficial numbers. And typically what they do is they work to thresholds that are established not based on science and safety, but based on politics and convenience. So for instance, uh, you, can, uh, you can go to the, uh, the FDA website or the USDA website, and they will say, oh, um, uh, a given crop, um, uh, wheat, should have less than such and such amount of glyphosate in it. Glyphosate is the herbicide that's the most commonly used chemical, you know, agrochemical, and it's um, now been demonstrated to cause cancer, to uh, cause liver, liver and kidney damage, and also birth defects. So you'll find there a number for it. But in fact, if you go to the scientific literature, you discover that in fact, levels 100 or 1,000 times lower of glyphosate, levels that much lower, are in fact toxic to the system. And for that reason, uh, you, you know, the, the, uh, those uh, government established thresholds are not very, they're not meaningful. Yes, indeed. In fact, that was the early name of your lab, the People's Lab, but then you changed it to HRI, Health Research right. Institute. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just before we leave the topic, I just wanted to emphasize to people watching this that the uh, many companies that are selling food, primarily in the food industry, not so much in the supplement industry, although that happens in the supplement industry too, it's more pervasive in the food industry, is they use these bastardized, uh, manipulated settings to prove that they are safe when in fact they aren't because they've changed the, the way that they're looking at it. It's just the way they do science. So it's important to know that and it's important to know that HRI does not do that, that you're getting the truth, that there's no uh, industry bias in your lab, and which is one of the reasons why we're so glad and delighted to collaborate with you. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So one of the big things that you're testing for, and, and is uh, I, there may be other labs that test for it, um, 
that is relatively unusual would be the glyphosate, you know, the most common herbicide used in the world to the tune of 5 billion with a B tons per year. Uh, and it's just permeating everything. So you do offer a test now that you can see the threshold levels. I actually had the test done and, and I reached below the threshold of your uh, spectroscope or spectrophotometer, which is, I think, for, you said 40 trillion, part, 40 parts per trillion. So uh, that's as low as you go. And I, I probably have some because, you know, no one's perfect, but it was pretty low. So uh, maybe you can comment on the test and the, the distribution of the results that you're seeing and the people are submitting them. Mm -hmm. So what people are doing, what this test does is it gives you a window into your own exposure to these chemicals. And in fact, uh, we look at the glyphosate as sort of a flag as an indicator for well, what else might be there. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and what we're finding is that um, there are, there's quite a range of levels of exposure, but that, um, that, you know, that people who are eating organic generally have much lower levels. Uh, people, it, it's interesting that um, women tend to have on average a little lower levels than men. There are certain behaviors that uh, tend to lead one to have higher levels. For instance, um, there, it isn't a super strong correlation, but it appears that if you're a golfer, you're more likely to get exposed because they use all these things on golf courses. And so you can, you can get that. So, uh, so that, that's out there in that way. And the, re the reassuring thing is that if you're, if you, uh, and we've had some people do this where they have a high level and they just say, okay, I'm going to change my diet. And mm -hmm. if they then go to a diet is, that's avoiding things that might contain uh, these chemicals, then within a week or two, they see significantly reduced levels of glyphosate. So you, it's a good measure for, or a good, good sort of um, way of guiding what you're doing with your diet. And, sure. and what you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and many times it's not, it's only theoretical or philosophical and you read about it and you hear about the concerns, but obviously the media is not exposing it. Most all conventional physicians are denying that it's an issue. So it's abstract, but when you get the numbers back from a lab and it's objective and you see it, it can be highly motivating. It definitely can. And we see people very often who are, they'll, they'll come back to us saying, oh yeah, this, this changed my way of thinking about my diet. So it's, it's a good thing, it really is. So you're, you're doing the converse and you're actually checking uh, food companies that claim to be natural and healthy and have no GMOs in their products. And then you do independent testing and you find that that's a big, bold batch of lies as you did recently with Ben and Jerry. So why don't you just describe that and if there's any other uh, companies that are in your target? That's a great question, Dr. McCola. Uh, it's really been an interesting process. And um, uh, just one thing to be clear, we don't do that, we, we don't just randomly test companies. It's when an organization like Organic Consumers Association has questions about company. They've done some research and they have questions. Um, or Moms Across America, or um, 
another organization that's uh, concerned with our food system, when they find something there they have questions about, then we're in a position to use the gold standard testing methods to really give them clear insight into what's going on with that particular product or that particular company. So for instance, um, Organic Consumers Association and an agricultural organization called Regeneration Vermont were concerned about what was happening with uh, Ben and Jerry's. And they, they came to us and they, they were concerned that, you know, that the, uh, the dairy industry in Vermont was in a hard, in a very difficult situation uh, in that the, um, the dairy producers, the farmers, the, the dairymen and dairy women uh, were, were really not even able to um, get a price for their product that they could, uh, that would cover their costs for producing the milk. And there, there was also concern from, from people in the, uh, the, um, the state that, um, that the dairies were, the, the dairy, um, the dairies were actually, some, the large industrial dairies were actually polluting all of the lakes and interfering, really creating problems for the, um, the Vermont, what do you call it, the, the tourist industry, that people were no longer coming to Vermont because the lakes and the rivers were polluted. So they wanted to look into what was at least going on with the quality of the milk. And so they came to us, they sent us some samples, and we did some really in-depth testing, very careful testing, using the very best methods that are out there. We use uh, what's called um, triple quadrupole mass spectrometry linked to liquid chromatography, high pressure liquid chromatography, to actually look at the, um, uh, very carefully at the, uh, the, the quality of the ingredients in a product. And what we found with Ben and Jerry's ice cream was a bit shocking in that we found that in fact, that ice cream contained substantial levels of glyphosate, which is the, one, the key active ingredient in Roundup herbicide, the weed killer that has been used so commonly in agriculture these days and is used with genetically engineered crops and on like that. So um, we looked for glyphosate in Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And what we found is that 10 out of the 11 different flavors that we looked at contained measurable amounts of glyphosate. And at least one of them contained levels that according to, to most recent research, uh, raised questions about safety. In particular, it had been found that glyphosate at quite low levels, uh, at, um, point, uh, at, at levels that are, you know, uh, considered safe by the EPA and the FDA, um, uh, that this most recent research showed that in fact those levels were not safe but could actually cause problems like fatty liver disease. And as you may know, there's a, an epidemic of fatty liver disease in America today, and it's 
linked with things like a metabolic syndrome and, and on like that. So what we found is that Ben and Jerry's ice cream contained substantial levels of glyphosate. And uh, then the Organic Consumers Association has been discussing those results around, around the country and um, discussing with Ben and Jerry's if they could um, do something about that. And the obvious most logical thing for them to do is to begin to uh, use ingredients that are organic instead of just conventional ingredients because organic bans the use of things like uh, glyphosate uh, in the production of crops. So it makes, makes, a good, uh, makes good sense to do that. We've been looking at a number of other food products as well. And um, uh, one interesting area is the grains and the legumes, the, the beans and peas and things like that. It turns out that for all of these crops, they have to be dry in the field before they're harvested. And to speed that process up, they, they, they now will often spray the field with glyphosate a couple weeks before it's harvested. And this is a, so this is fresh sprayed before they harvest the crop. And this can have big problems. It turns out that, um, that the, um, the levels of glyphosate that we're seeing in breads and other things that contain wheat or in legumes, uh, beans, uh, garbanzo beans, things like that, um, are quite substantial. Oats and barley and things like that. Um, uh, it's been found that, um, for instance, uh, Quaker oats contains very high levels of glyphosate. And, um, and you can actually find it in the urine of people who've been eating Quaker oats. So, um, so these are the kinds of problems that are coming up out there and all this needed is for the the um, the wheat producers and grain producers to change their practices so that they're not spraying the fields with this wheat killer immediately before they they harvest it and it will, will solve those problems so we've been looking at a number of crops that way so uh, doing this testing we believe is bringing it's making something that's been invisible, visible to us in our food system. When, when, you take, when you take spinach home from the grocery store for your family, you know, you pick up this spinach, it looks green and fresh and healthy, but it could contain, based on even uh, USDA and um, Center of uh, the, uh, the Center for Dis Disease Control CDC testing that's been done, you find out that on average, a vegetable like spinach uh, that you buy, buy in an American, you know, American grocery store is going to contain or carry on average eight different pesticides. That's eight different pesticides and you're taking it home to feed your family without knowing that that's the case. And the reason you don't, you aren't able to know that is because the chemical companies have done a really good job basically lobbying our government so that nobody in the supply chain has to talk 
about these herbicides and, and pesticides and these other agrochemicals. The farmer doesn't have to talk about them. The brands that are selling products made from those things don't have to talk about them. The, the, the grocery stores don't have to. They're essentially, they've been made invisible in our food system. And that's a big concern. So what we're doing is we're doing testing using rigorous methods, the very best methods out there, most sensitive methods out there, to make these invisible things visible so that you know more about what's in your food system and in the foods that you're, you're giving to your families. And this is so important because this allows each of us, each of each person out there to make better choices about the food that they, they provide to their children. We've started with glyphosate because it's the most used herbicide on the planet. In fact, it's the most, in terms of tons used, it's the most used uh, agrochemical uh, in the marketplace today, whether in the US or South America or Europe or or Asia is the most used one. So we felt that was a good place to start. And so we see it as an indicator of what else is in our food that way. But we're going to be moving on to test for a wide range of uh, agrochemicals. And that will give a bigger window into the situation so that you can make better choices about the food that you eat. So we feel this is important. There's another part of what, we, what we're doing that is, we hope, even more helpful to you. And that is that we are actually, we've, we've developed a test where you can send in a urine sample and find out how much glyphosate is in your system that way. And uh, so it's a good feedback system to use to assess where your diet uh, is taking you in terms of the, uh, the the chemicals in your in your system, and we've we've been doing this now. We've looked at um, uh, more than 1,200 different people have sent in in samples, and this is really this it's really interesting. This is being done as as a research project, so that each person that participates in this is really. Uh, a volunteer in this research project, and um, and so when when you send in a, uh, a a urine sample for this, you not only get the information yourself about well what's what's in my system, but you're contributing to what we're seeing to this study that's going to give us information about diet. How does diet influence those things? How does your lifestyle, other things? your location, your, um, you know, your, your neighborhood, how do all of these things affect your, um, your exposure to these agrochemicals? Here are, a few, here are a few points that we've found so far that, believe it or not, 76% of the people who send in samples for testing for glyphosate, and by the way, you can actually um, uh, get these tests um, on the on Dr. Mercola's website, there these tests are actually available there. You can order them uh, for yourself, for your family, give it to somebody as a birthday present. It's an interesting health birthday present, you might say. 
and uh, become part of this, this um, we call it citizen science that we're doing here. And you get healthy information about your own uh, you know, health as well by doing this. So 76% of the people who participate in this have some level of glyphosate in their system. Most of that, most people only traces, but some people substantial levels. Um, uh, here are a few of the things we found. Men typically have higher levels than women. Um, another is that, um, that if you eat oats on a regular level, on basis, if you eat you know, oatmeal or, or oat cakes or things like that, um, you can expect to have twice as much glyphosate in, in your system as people who don't. And that's because oats are one of the most commonly sprayed for this desiccation or drying of the crop before it's harvested. Um, on the other hand, if you eat organic products, um, there's um, an 80% lower levels of, for people who eat organic on a regular basis. So uh, that's a, a, that indicates that organic products typically have lower levels and um, so are going to be safer. Um, if you eat six, uh, no, if you eat five or more vegetable helpings a day, you'll, you're likely to have 50% lower levels than people who, um, people who don't eat so many vegetables. And again, we think that that's that way because it's an indicator of people who are generally focused on healthier eating, eating people who have healthier eating patterns. And with those healthy eating patterns, comes less, you know, less reliance on things that might have higher glyphosate levels. Um, uh, other things, um, uh, we, so far we haven't seen any connection with, with rural versus city dwellers or with seasonal versus, um, you know, are there seasonal uh, changes. And this indicates that most of the glyphosate is coming into our diet through the food we eat and not through the environment around us. Um, though we have seen some interesting things, for instance, in the Midwest at least, we're seeing that rainwater um, has uh, quite uh, substantial levels of glyphosate. And this is because during, uh, you know, during the growing season, the, uh, much of the glyphosate is, um, you know, is sprayed Aerially, you'll have these um, these um, uh, crop dusters that uh, come across the fields and spray. And there's always a lot that gets picked up in the wind and carried away. And then the rain will carry it down to the ground. So rainwater, although you might think of that as being a healthy source of water, is a little risky that way. Um, we've also been collaborating with a research group in at the University of California. In, uh, in San Diego, and they had access to uh, urine samples from a, one of these, um, these epidemiological studies where they study the same population of people over 15 or 20 years. And so we had urine samples from people that got, went all the way back into the 70s up until the present. And we asked the question, what happens with glyphosate levels 
compared to the use of glyphosate in the marketplace in, in, you know, for agricultural uses. And what we found was that there was a very close correlation. And so it's sort of like this hockey stick that for many years it's low, but as soon as glyphosate comes in, it begins to come up. And then suddenly with the genetically engineered crops, boom, it begins to take off in a big way. So, um, so there's that. that. That study is actually going to be published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It'll be coming out in October of this year. So um, keep, uh, you know, keep your eyes, uh, eyes peeled for that. It will be coming out in the near future. And very interesting because it shows that there's a clear correlation between the use of this in agriculture and the level of exposure of the population. So these are a few of the things we found to date. And um, we find this pretty interesting results. And we feel that this is useful mostly because, as I said before, it makes what's invisible visible and allows us to give you better information about what is safe to eat and what isn't and how to, how to guide your diet so that you're going to reduce the risk of um, exposure to this chemical as well as other things. And remember, these chemicals, there's, there's growing evidence that low levels of these things interact with each other so that you have a little glyphosate here and maybe some atrazine is from another place and those together might have some uh, nasty impact in that way. Or um, uh, chlorpyrifos or something else like that might interact. We don't, I can't say that that's the case for, but I'm just sort of giving it as an example, glyphosate and some other uh, pesticide might interact and cause problems that neither one of them would cause if you were if you had uh, doses of just individuals. So that's where we are with things today, and the we're working really um, focus in a focused way to look at other aspects of our food system, and looking not just for the pesticides and the negative things, but we want to look and understand what are the connections between the way that food is produced by the farmers and its nutritional value. And what we're, you know, what the hints are that we're seeing is that healthy soil makes healthy food, makes healthy people. And we're gonna be going into that using these very sophisticated uh, high pressure liquid chromatography linked to mass spectrometry to look at all of the nutri nutrients at once. We can, with these machines, we can look at, you know, uh, from a single sample of broccoli, we can look at, um, uh, you know, uh, 500 to 1,000 different metabolites, different nutrients that would be present. And in one swoop, uh, give a sense of what all of those are. And, well, how does um, uh, regeneratively produced uh, broccoli compare with um, broccoli that's produced using uh, chemicals? Or how does a CAFO chicken, a chicken that's produced in a confined animal feeding unit uh, uh, or operation, how does it compare in nutritional value to a, um, a chicken that's been produced in a regenerative pasture-based uh, uh, production system. Um, we don't have the answers to that yet, but I'll bet you 
that we're going to find big differences in the nutrition. The protein value may be the same, and the, um, the fats and the carbohydrates that are present, but the micronutrients, we're going to see big differences. And it's those micronutrients that make the difference in terms of the health of your physiology and the, the strength of, of the bones that you have and, the, um, and the, um, the, the, the balance in your physiology. So we're, we hope that we're going to be able to bring some really powerful new information to you in this way. And for this nutrient uh, work, it's quite interesting because the, the machines that we're using, the instruments that we're using, are often used by scientists for looking at metabolites in the physiology. They'll take a sample of serum and run it through one of these machines to see what the metabolites are, what happens when you, are, um, you have a certain uh, health problem or when you take a certain drug or something like that. Um, but what we're doing, instead of doing metabolomics, we're doing melcholomics and metalomics and wheatalomics, looking at the, the balance of these um, nutrients that are present in these different things. It's really applying this very sophisticated, very powerful instrumentation for this new application so that we can see more deeply into our foods and you, can, you will benefit from better choices when, you, when, when we come up with this data. So um, that's, uh, that's, a, uh, that's where we are with things at this point and where we're going with them. One of the interesting things about using these very powerful research instruments to look at food purity is that, um, uh, that, that uh, Dr. Mercola is actually beginning to use these to look at the quality of their own products. And so they're, they're, you might say they're on the leading edge in that they're already looking to make sure that the products that they're offering to you are going to be maximally safe, maximally pure, uh, maximally having the highest authenticity that would be possible. So by, by doing that, they've added another level of quality control to the, um, to the, the processes, to, the, to their standard quality control methodologies. And this takes them way beyond the limits of what most companies are doing in terms of testing the, the quality and the safety and nutritional value of their products.